Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, Health Canada finally approves a rapid test kit for COVID-19, but will it be a game changer in the fight against the virus? On a day when Ontario predicts as many as 1,000 new COVID-19 cases a day by mid-October. Aaron O'Toole makes his debut in the Commons as the leader of the official opposition after the House of Commons unanimously passes new COVID-19 economic supports in the first test of confidence for the minority government. And debate night in America. Lies, insults and chaos. But we'll begin tonight in this country and COVID-19. Health Canada finally moved today to approve a rapid test for COVID-19. The ID Now testing device is manufactured by Abbott, and it could allow communities across Canada to step up their testing just as cases begin to spike in a second wave. The approval was confirmed in the House of Commons today as the leader of the official opposition challenged the Prime Minister over the testing delays. Mr. Speaker, the United States has been proving rapid testing for months. The European Union has been approving them since spring. Our European trade agreement actually requires us to deem the processes for medical investigation to be equivalent to the EU. But Germany, Italy and the UK have been having tests for months while Canadians wait hours in line. When are Canadians finally going to receive rapid testing? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Speaker, from the very beginning of this crisis, we've worked with provinces and territories to enhance testing capacity. We've given more funds and resources to Health Canada to approve the new technologies coming on the market. Indeed, yesterday, Minister of Public Services and Procurement and the Minister of Health announced the purchase of 7.9 million rapid point-of-care tests from Abbott Rapid Diagnostics pending Health Canada approval. Well, this afternoon, Health Canada authorized that Abbott ID. We can now be deployed the provinces and territories with deliveries coming in the coming weeks, Mr. Speaker. The approval of the rapid testing device comes as Quebec reported another 838 cases today, and the province of Ontario reported 625 new cases, rising in all age groups, and it also unveiled new modelling that predicts as many as 1,000 new cases a day by the middle of October, just two weeks from now. The modelling also warns about the extra strain on hospital intensive care units. By mid-October, Ontario could see a thousand new cases a day. We're starting to see a rise in case numbers across all age groups, not just among young people. And if these numbers keep rising, we'll see two to three hundred patients in ICU beds per day. Folks, we have to work together to turn the tide in this fight. Dr. Allison McGeer is an infectious disease physician at Toronto's Mount Sinai Hospital and a professor at the University of Toronto. She's with me now. Uh, Dr. McGeer, thanks for your time today, first of all. Let me begin with the news that Health Canada has now approved the COVID-19 rapid test kits from Abbott, and those kits will be distributed to the provinces and communities within the next couple of weeks, we hear. There uh, been lots of criticism of how long the approvals process has taken, and I want to start by asking whether those rapid tests could be a game-changer in this country. 
So if if we had a really good rapid test, it might be, but none of the rapid test, one, one of the reasons that we've been slow to approve rapid tests is because none of the available rapid tests we have are good enough to be game changers. Not to say that in specific circumstances they may not be helpful, but their challenge is that they're not as sensitive as the PCR tests. And in the hands of non-lab users, which is where you'd really like to use them, they may not also be as specific. So because they're not as good a test, um, although they have the advantage of being much faster, um, you still have to wait for backup of the PCR. And so uh, a piece of the problem is we're adding tests and expense to the system to do this, as opposed to replacing tests, which is a problem. Um, and, and so probably there's going to be some, we really want to use these smartly and in a targeted way to circumstances where speed is important, but accuracy is not essential. And, and, as you see, that's 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 kind of limited. Really, what we want is is good targeted testing, so that we're not stretching our laboratories beyond their limitations, and we're getting rapid results to people who need them. So, so we, you're saying we need to be really careful about thinking so that this is sort of a eureka moment, uh, and now we're going to suddenly oh. be able to test people quickly and and make everybody feel better about where they are in this in this fight, or or worse if they turn out to be positive, but they'll know quicker, but you're saying, hang on a minute. Yeah, no, no, it's not, you know, every little piece of, of, of this helps. So these rapid tests will be of assistance, but they are not a game changer. They are not gonna create miracles and they really have significant limitations in association with them that we need to be very careful about. Let's talk about Ontario and the, I guess the worrisome modeling projections that we saw released today. Uh, help us understand why the COVID-19 virus is spreading so quickly in the province of Ontario right now. Well, you know, the, the, the answer is that I think we thought we were okay. You know, the lockdown was very hard for everybody. All of us really wanted to be back doing the things that we enjoy doing, seeing people. Um, and, and we released a lot of restrictions. And I think we were all hoping when we did that, that we were gonna, if you like, get away with it, that, that we would still have enough restrictions in place that the virus would not spread. And, and here's the answer, we were wrong. Um, and now virus spread has started to pick up and, and we, we want very badly not to go back to where we were before. But you know, this is this is this is not optional, right? This is not we're not talking a rational virus that we can negotiate with, right? We're talking a virus that will spread if we don't maintain the social distancing to stop it from spreading. And so, um, uh, from my perspective, it, it is essential at the moment in Ontario, or at least not in all areas of Ontario, right? right. Really, we're still talking urban areas, um, you know, predominantly Ottawa, um, the GTA. But in those areas where there are rapidly increasing cases, each one of us in the population, okay, this is not, to my mind, public health figures or people telling us what to do. This is each one of us saying, okay, virus is spreading. 
all of us need to be reducing our contacts so that we can get this back under control again. You, you, you and some 40 of your colleagues specializing in infectious diseases have, have called for the Ontario government to take stronger preventative measures here. And what should the government uh, be looking at shutting down? Because Dr. Williams, we heard today, the, the medical officer of health for the province, was suggesting targeted closing of businesses and functions in those hot spots that you've touched on in Ontario, opposed to a blanket shutdown. Is, is that the right approach? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, again, I, I, I think maybe if we go with targeted shutdowns and each of us doing our piece, we'll be okay. Um, and, and, of course, the problem is that all the, the, the targeted shutdowns are really hard for some people. So I, I think, you know, the evidence is that indoor dining in groups, so indoor dining in restaurants is a very high-risk activity. Shutting down indoor dining in restaurants is really hard on a very large number of people. So if we're going to do it, it needs to be accompanied by wage relief and, and business relief for those people, right? So it, it's fine to say targeted, but it's still targeted at activities that are going to be very harmful to some person. So um, I, I think we can hit the high targets. At the same time, I don't think in Ontario at the moment, that if we do nothing except hit those targets, that we will be doing enough. Um, and the added piece that I would like to see is every Ontarian saying, okay, what am I willing to give up this week? Because we learned that you don't have to give up everything. But, are but we, if you give up uh, nothing, it's going to keep spreading. One of the big so, ones is uh, yeah. one, of, one of the big, big, big uh, ones people talk about is schools. Uh, do we need to look at closing down the schools again? Again, I think we're really hoping at the moment that we don't have to close down schools. I think schools have there's not been as much activity as we thought there might be. I think it's still there's still a lot of uncertainties because so many kids can get infected without getting sick that it being confident that we don't have infections in schools uh, just because we don't have illness in schools is a little hard. So I, I think it's too early to tell about schools, but I don't think we don't have the evidence at the moment to say that we need to shut down schools. And so if, if it were me, um, uh, I, I, I think it's acceptable that we're leaving schools open, but we can't, do small things. We 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 have to move the needle on our social distancing significantly if we expect to get this under control. All right, Dr. Allison McGear, thank you for your time uh, tonight. Appreciate it. Pleasure to talk to you, Peter. Well, the House of Commons passed the federal government's new package of economic support measures for Canadians in the wee hours of this morning after just four and a half hours of debate. And despite the stated misgivings and complaints from opposition parties about how the measures were pushed through by the government, the vote ended up being unanimous. Let's bring in three members of Parliament on the latest developments in the House. Omar Al-Gabra is an Ontario Liberal MP and the Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister. Tim Upple is an Edmonton Conservative MP. And Jenny Kwan is a British Columbia and NDP MP and her party's Deputy Health Critic. It's good to see you all. Uh, Mr. Al-Gabra, let me start with you. MPs unanimously passed the new COVID-19 benefits early this morning. Uh, the bill is at the Senate now and some senators are balking at being asked to fast track it through the upper chamber. How concerned are you that there could be a delay in getting those benefits uh, to the Canadians who are jobless or have been uh, seen their, their hours of work cut because of COVID-19? Uh, Peter, first, uh, thank you for having me uh, uh, on your show uh, to have this important discussion. 
I think Canadians know that from the beginning of this pandemic, our government has shown tremendous commitment to supporting Canadians and businesses during this difficult time. Uh, the passing of C4 yesterday was an important uh, uh, measure, an important step in, in, in continuing the support. And I honestly don't remember the last time a confidence measure was passed unanimously in a minority parliament. Are you, um, are you concerned now, though, that it could get bogged down in the Senate? I, look, I know senators have to do their job, but I also am, uh, uh, I, I know that senators uh, are responsible and they'll do what they need to do, but they'll do it in an expedited fashion because I know they know Canadians are counting on this. Okay, but Mr. Upple, how did we end up with a unanimous vote supporting these new economic supports for COVID-19 when the Conservatives spent days slamming the government for ramming through these measures? Yeah, we actually we, we did. We were very uh, concerned because, you know, we want to make sure that Canadians get the help and support that they need. There's no doubt about that. And, and, and we've shown that support for them. But the concern really is about uh, as members of parliament that we do our due diligence as well. We've seen before how the liberals have rammed um, bills through before. And where they've and they've uh, you know created problems, and then we, they even had to bring bills back again before the house. But we're really in this problem because Justin Trudeau decided to probe Parliament for six weeks to avoid scrutiny on his scandals, and now all of a sudden, now after six weeks of no Parliament, it's like well, we've got to hurry up, we've got to hurry up. All right, but but if so they, that's let me, let me, we're in this problem, if you couldn't give it proper scrutiny, why support it? Uh, unless you don't want to be seen as standing in the way of help for Canadians. Well, I mean, we, we did what we could, right? There was uh, billions of dollars of spending that we uh, had, what, four and a half hours of debate. So, our, our you know, we were there. Our team, uh, you know, reviewed as much as we could. We, we've looked at the bill and uh, we're satisfied to the point where, you know, at least money's getting out the door. But, uh, you know, with, with a little bit more time, if we weren't in, if we, if we weren't in a prorogue situation, we actually would have been able to uh, contribute more uh, to this and, and possibly come out with a better bill. But uh, the, right now, it's the one that was before us. Okay. We, want, we don't want to delay this bill and so we made sure that Canadians got the support that, that they uh, that they really need. Jenny Kwan, the NDP supported the government in its bid to fast track these measures with uh, such limited scrutiny and review. How can you be sure these measures aren't flawed and won't have to be reworked as has happened with other COVID-19 relief programs? Well, the NDP actually worked hard in ensuring that the government uh, provided supports to Canadians who needed it. Uh, and there's no question, in fact, the process could have been a lot better. Had the Trudeau government not prorogued the House, uh, we would have been able to spend time to go through this entire process uh, and to make sure that we get it right. That said, the Trudeau government decided to prorogue the House so that they don't have to deal with the we scandal. Now, with this, we stayed uh, very focused, New Democrats, on maintaining that we need to push ahead to get the government to respond. Because you'll remember that when the government announced the prorogation of the House, that they were going to cut supports to Canadians. In fact, they were going to reduce the amount of support for Canadians from 2000 to 1600. Uh, and we said that's not good enough. So we pushed ahead to drive this issue home. And then so that's the consequence of Bill C4. Right. In addition to that, we also drove the issue on sick leave so that Canadians can get, get access to sick leave, particularly in a pandemic. Is Bill C4 perfect? Absolutely not. Okay. There's no good reason as to why the government is not making the uh, pay sick leave permanent, for example. Uh, you know, we okay. offer other... Okay, I got I to I, I jump in. We'll, we'll be able to follow up on that uh, as we have these conversations. 
Um, but look at Mr. Algabra, there's there's also talk I'm hearing that the government uh, will plan to fast track new measures to replace the rent subsidy program for small businesses, which expires tonight. Uh, there been lots of complaints about that program's effectiveness. Uh, can you tell me anything about that? Has the government got uh, more measures coming for small business and when? Uh, look, we have, again, as I said earlier, we've been committed to Canadians and businesses and the speech from the throne reinforced that commitment to small businesses with their core costs or with their fixed costs, including uh, relief for rent. Um, uh, I understand there's been some issues with the uh, first uh, iteration of their rent uh, assistance, mm -hmm. and we are working with provinces and other stakeholders to come up with a plan. But let me just take a, a pushback on this idea that prorogation had an impact on those bills. Prorogation did not delay the start of Parliament. Parliament was, was scheduled to start uh, last week, and it still started last week. So I understand the opposition is doing what the opposition normally does, but prorogation did not have an impact on delaying the start of parliament. Right. Uh, although with the end of serve coming, you, you could have uh, you could have moved, I suppose, to, uh, ex you know, bring parliament back early if you wanted to and pass those measures sooner rather than waiting till September. But that's perhaps an argument for another day. Uh, Mr. Uppel, uh, if the government moves to uh, fast track uh, help for uh, small businesses through a, some kind of a new rent subsidies program. How are conservatives going to deal with that? Well, listen, I mean, we've been hearing for months and months now that uh, uh, small businesses are struggling over this program. This program, this rent subsidy program has been a complete failure. We've been hearing that from almost the beginning. It, it wasn't structured properly. It's not being used well. Um, and so now it's right up until the deadline. The program is about to expire. There's still nothing new uh, coming forward. And all of a sudden, you know, like you said, we may hear that, uh, you know, now we need to rush something through. This is becoming a real okay. pattern for the Liberals. And the way they're, uh, you know, kind of just doing this on the back of a napkin. And uh, that, that's becoming frustrating. We're, we're willing to work with the government. But, you know, like I said before, we have a job to do to try to help, you know, to make sure that this is the best program uh, for, for Canadians. And when, when you purposely uh, reduce the amount of debate, you rush these things through, mistakes will be made. And they've made them before. And okay, we're trying to you know, get through that. Uh, Jenny Kwan, let me move to the issue of testing here. Uh, Health Canada approving a rapid test today. Lots of talk that it's taken too long and that we should accept uh, the, uh, uh, the testing regimes and the approval regimes of some of Canada's allied countries that have already approved some of these uh, rapid testing devices. Wh where are you on that? Should, should we just, if another country says it's okay to use, should we be fast-tracking approvals for rapid testing devices for COVID-19? Well, there's no question that Canada is falling behind with rapid testing. Uh, all you have to do is look around the situation right now in Ontario, for example. Literally, people are lined up for hours. Some people have lined up for days and they still can't get access to a test. And that is hugely problematic. Now, the government supposedly prorogue the House so that they can actually uh, come together with a plan to address the COVID situation moving forward. And what have they done? This was not even mentioned in the throne speech. Rapid testing was not even mentioned in the throne speech. Okay. Was that even on their radar? You have to wonder, why are we so behind with respect to that? The okay, WHO I, I got to jump in, Mr. Algabra. Why is it taking so long? Uh, look, uh, Health Canada is an independent body that assesses and regulates um, health uh, services and products. Uh, we need to keep it that way. We need to keep it uh, uh, dependent on science and evidence. 
Um, I'm actually surprised that sometimes, uh, especially conservative MPs, are calling uh, on Canada to give up its sovereignty in deciding and in its regulating uh, the services that Canadians and the products that Canadians use. Uh, having okay. said that, I, uh, I understand the sense of urgency that is needed, and our government has committed additional resources to Health Canada. So All right, I got it. Okay, Mr. Uppel, I got about uh, 20 seconds or so for you. Where the conservatives you know, on like, this, conservatives on this are saying that we should accept uh, testing regimes from other countries and fast track these tests. Uh, what's the what argument? What we should be there? doing is be working with other countries. We're doing that with the science, uh, with with the development of vaccines. Right, we're already partnering with them. There's money being put into it, and and in the same way, there should be leadership shown on getting uh, better testing to, to get the fast tracking of this kind of quick testing. This is needed. This is needed for for kids to go, to be able to properly be able to go to school for businesses. Okay. Uh, it, it's really needed, and, and the Liberals have dropped the ball on this completely. Well, we have one approved by Health Canada today. We'll see how fast uh, we may get others. Uh, thank you all for your time tonight. I do appreciate it. We'll talk again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Still lots of follow today from the first presidential debate last night. A debate between Republican President Donald Trump and the Democratic challenger Joe Biden. A debate described by many as a circus, punctuated by personal insults and angry interruptions. Here are a couple of the key exchanges. This is the same man it's who all told set you up. by Easter this had be gone away. By the warm weather it'd be gone. Miraculous, like a miracle. And by the way, maybe you could inject some bleach in your arm, and that would take care of it. This is the that same man. That was said sarcastically, that was you same, know that. I, that I, was said sarcastically. And so here's the deal. You I, aren't why president, you do it Because you aren't president years. screwing no, no, things no, no. up. You were a senator. And You're by the, the worst way, president vice, America has ever had. Hey, hey, Come Joe, on. The fact is that everything he's saying so far is simply a lie. I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. But you I just agree. want to hey, make Joe, sure. Joe, you're the liar. I, 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 I want to make sure. You graduated last in your class, I, not I, first in your I, class. <laughs> I want to make Mr. sure. Mr. President, can you let him finish, sir? No, he doesn't know how to do that. He has, You'd you know. Surprised. He, he, what do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacist and right like me to condemn? White Proud supremacist and right Proud Proud boys, stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. New question Supreme is, Court justice, radical question, left. Will you who shut is up, on, man. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so list? Right. Gentlemen, is, I think this we've is ended so this. He's going to pack the court. So was there any value in that debate last night? Was anyone well served by what we witnessed? And did it shift the race for the presidency in the United States? Adrian Morrow is a Washington correspondent for The Globe and Mail. He joins me now. Uh, Adrian, good to see you again. And I'm not sure if we've ever seen a debate anywhere go off the rails so quickly and so badly as the one we saw last night. But let me walk through some of the, uh, let's see if we can find uh, something to talk about in here. Was there a defining moment uh, for President Trump in the debate? Let's start there. I think uh, I think there were really two. If you wanted to pick a single moment, I think it was the one where he refused to really explicitly condemn white supremacy, where you know he had the moderator you know asking him repeatedly, basically giving him this very sort of open opportunity to just say I condemn white supremacy. But he sort of danced around the question, said you know I would condemn, I would condemn it, but then asked what is it exactly you want me to condemn? Was very sort of um, was very kind of cagey on it. 
that should be such a simple thing for literally everybody, you know, including obviously the president of the United States, the you know, su supposed leader of the free world to do to condemn, you know, a hateful ideology. So the fact that Trump, you know, wouldn't do it or tried to dodge that question, I think was, you know, was, was very defining for him. Um, and then on, on a more sort of macro level, I guess, just the, the debating style that the president came in with that, you know, we knew that Trump would, would be belligerent. We knew that he would, he would interrupt. But I don't think that anybody quite expected him to do it to that degree, to basically spend the entire debate, um, you know, heckling Biden, uh, you know, talking over Biden, fighting with the moderator. Right. Um, you know, and I think that that really, you know, I mean, that obviously shaped the entire character of the debate. Um, and so maybe it wasn't exactly a moment for the president, but I think it, it really showed this is, you know, this is what he was all about. That's the approach he took. What about Joe Biden? Um, how did Joe Biden do? And was there a defining moment for him that had, you know, might have people paying closer attention? I mean, yeah, I suppose that the soundbite uh, this morning is going to be him, uh, you know, telling uh, Donald Trump to shut up. Um, but I overall, I sort of felt like like Biden seemed to uh, seem to be trying a couple of different tacks with Trump. And I'm not sure, you know, that even he could figure out which one exactly was going to work the best. Early on, you saw him pushing back, you know, saying Trump was a clown, um, you know, basically saying, don't listen to this guy. I, he repeatedly called Trump a liar. That seemed like a very calculated choice on Biden's part, you know, in, in terms of his framing of the president. Um, but then there are other moments where, you know, Biden seemed to think, you know, maybe he was getting drawn too much into it, or he was sinking to Trump's level, as he'd be trying to sort of step back a little bit and, and just sort of disengage and, 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 you know, and ignore the president, um, which gave Trump a little bit more sort of uh, leeway and airtime to kind of say what he wanted to say. So, uh, you know, I, I, I know Biden sort of was going into this debate trying to seem like the adult in the room. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure, you know, that he was really able to figure out which of those kind of tacks was going to get him there. Right. I mean, as a Canadian, I'm always listening for something from the candidates that might tell me what to watch for in the Canada-U.S. relationship, because this is uh, this is the fight between two men who want to be president. Uh, did we hear anything last night uh, about that that might give us a hint of what to watch for as Canadians? Yeah, very difficult to, to kind of pull anything out. I mean, you know, the notion that Donald Trump may not accept the election results if he doesn't like, you know, how they look um, after November 3rd, maybe that's that's the thing that Canadians can kind of take away with it. Because, you know, at the end of the day, this is our, you know, our, our closest neighbor, our biggest trading partner, um, you know, our, our longtime ally. Um, you know, so the sorts of things that happen if, if things, you know, really sort of uh, get chaotic or blow up here in the, the days after the election, you know, Canada will probably feel the, the reverberations uh, in some sense. Um, you know, you didn't really get as much content on trade, though, as, as I was expecting. Um, you know, not that we got a lot of content generally last night, but it's the sort of thing, it is It is one of those genuine points of disagreement between the, the two of them where, you know, Trump has a, a very protectionist stance, holds up the USMCA as one of his big uh, accomplishments as president, uh, and Biden is a free trader, you know, and, and so I, I did actually expect a little bit more of a, a clash on that, but you got very, very little of it. There was some reference to China, but that's as far as it went. Well, overall, we didn't get a whole lot into policy. It was, it was all about insults and attacks, right? I mean, yeah. e each side has its loyal supporters, and, and, and these kinds of debates are, I think, really about trying to win over uh, the undecided or the wavering voters, and there, there aren't a whole lot of those, it would seem, going in, according to the polls in the United States. Uh, how did the candidates do at that, trying to win over, uh, you know, win over people who have yet decided? Did they give them anything to grab onto here? I don't think so. I mean, I think most undecided voters, you know, most voters who are sort of only uh, peripherally, you know, interested in politics would just be completely turned off by this entire spectacle, whether they watched some of it last night or they're looking at the clips this morning and just seeing, you know, three guys all sort of talking over each other and, and shouting each other down. Um, you know, I don't think any undecided voter is, you know, is going to feel, you know, sort of motivated by this. Um, you know, and in fact, uh, um, the opposite is true. I think if you if you were trying to get fewer people to vote, you know, if you felt that, you know, your best bet, you know, as a candidate, 
candidate was to solidify your support and then try to get, you know, as many sort of centrist voters to just, you know, stay home because they were so upset with the whole process as possible. You know, that, that is this is probably the sort of debate that you would go for. Um, so I think if anything, it, you know, it, it's going to it's going to turn people off in the middle and, and maybe, you know, maybe discourage some people from voting. All right. Uh, here's the really good news, he said with a, uh, a slight smirk. There are two more of these presidential debates to go. The next one on October 15th is a town hall format with, with audience questions. Um, how hopeful are you that uh, it might be better than what we saw last night? At this point, I, I, uh, I'm not even certain whether the, the, you know, the, the next couple of debates are going to go ahead. It seems uh, entirely possible that the Biden campaign might make some you know, requests after last night of the, of the debate commission and say, you know, we're only going to participate if you, you know, guarantee that there will be no interruptions, that everybody's going to get two minutes sort of thing, that there won't be this kind of, you know, an opportunity for that sort of back and forth. Good luck with that. I mean. Yeah, who knows whether the Trump campaign would ever agree to something like that. So, you know, so I, I think, you know, Something certainly has to change to avoid, you know, what what happened last night. Um, you know, I thought Chris Wallace, you know, did attempt to intervene, you know, quite a bit. Was trying to, um, you know, to to keep the, uh, especially to keep Donald Trump on track when, you know, when when there was a lot of crosstalk. Um, but every time he did, it just sort of turned into this, you know, three way brawl, you know, with with him kind of getting mixed up in it. So it's really hard to see how you fix the format to ensure that doesn't happen again. Yeah, well, that's that's the big that's the open question, right? Because the the Trump the Trump team had agreed to these two minute answers uninterrupted. Uh, that was the agreement going in, but uh, the president certainly didn't hold to it. So uh, who knows whether any other agreement would stand up for a change in format at the mm -hmm. next one. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and and who knows what another moderator could do. I mean, you know, there were probably different reviews of, of you know, how, how Chris Wallace handled this. But overall, it was difficult for me to see at times, you know, what a different moderator would have mm -hmm. done to, you know, to, to constrain this or to actually get everybody sticking to their, their two minutes. I mean, I suppose you could start cutting off people's microphones or, you know, put the candidates in separate rooms or something like that and, and you know, cut the camera away from them when, when their speaking time was done. But Beyond that, it is hard to see, you know, what you would do as a moderator to ensure that you kind of keep this, you know, these sorts of things on track. All right. Adrian Morrow, uh, appreciate your perspective. Uh, thanks for taking time to speak with me. Take care. Thanks for having me. That's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks again for watching. See you next time.